Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by Nikhil Krishnan. Hello, Nikhil. Uh, hello, Miles. Hi, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really enjoy- going to enjoy this conversation. Um, Nikhil is here to discuss his new book, A Terribly Serious Adventure, Philosophy at Oxford, 1900 to 1960. And it's just been published in the UK with Profile Books and will shortly be out um, in the US with Random House. That's going to be both in hardback and audio book. Uh, with the paperback to follow and you can find a link to it um, in the description box on this podcast um, with the caveat that it may only be available in your area on import if you're listening to the podcast outside the UK or indeed the US um, at um, particular point this summer but um, I'm sure you'll want to take a closer look at it after you've heard our discussion. Nikhil is assistant professor at the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge and he's a fellow of Robinson College. He wrote his doctorate in philosophy at Balliol College, Oxford, and his work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New Statesman, and he regularly reviews a wide range of books for The Daily Telegraph. So, Nicola, welcome to the podcast. Um, as I say, thanks for joining me. It's your first time on. Um, I've so enjoyed this book. Um, I was so grateful that I got to see an advanced copy, and then, obviously, when it came out, I had to get a copy. It's now sitting in front of me. Um, and, you know, just consumed it over two or three days. I'm just difficult to put down um and in the book um i think it's really nice the way that you you move us into the story of this of the philosophy at um, this historical period by talking about the detail of your own life how you came to be at oxford and your background in not just philosophy but in the arts and humanities in general would you share a little bit of that with us here too because i think it's important for our listeners to know where you're coming from Sure. Uh, thank you for the kind words about the book, Miles, and I'm pleased you uh, enjoyed it. It's certainly a book that's designed to be uh, pleasant and engaging to read. Uh, mm, people is. will um, learn a few things about history and philosophy from it as well. Um, so you asked me about the origins of the book uh, in my own life. Uh, I'm sort of start with a little caveat there. I'm always kind of wary of answering these questions and I only included a bit of autobiography in the book on the urging of my publisher, who oh, okay. uh, my American publisher in particular, who thought that you know the book needed a bit of eros. That's that's their view. Um, okay. They need to the personal, otherwise yeah. you don't quite know what the stakes are for the author. Um, but I'm wary in saying that of some of the injunctions of Iris Murdoch herself, who famously said, "Philosophy is not self-expression." And <laughs> uh, she had a great suspicion of a certain kind of romanticism that's involved in thinking that all you're doing in doing philosophy is exploring your own uh, temperament. I think is her phrase. Yes. But having said all that, uh, in, with apologies to at least the side of Iris Murdoch that was wary of this sort of romanticism. Um, so I was born in in India, and I only came to the UK and to Oxford as an adult. Uh, I received a scholarship which allowed me to do a degree which, as it happened, was in philosophy, politics and economics. Mm -hmm. And in the course of doing that, I quietly dropped the economics bit the first chance I could (laughs) and uh, focused for the most part on the philosophy and uh, politics. And even with the politics, it was largely political philosophy and the history of political thought. Now, these were subjects uh, to which I'd had very little exposure before then, certainly none at all in school. And perhaps in the time shortly after school, I um, very uh, happily uh, was given a copy of a book by uh, an old English teacher of mine, which was a a very, very uh, faint photocopied edition of the transcripts 
of a book I'm sure you'll know well, Miles, called Men of Ideas. Exactly. Where notoriously, um, Iris Murdoch is counted as one of the men for the purpose of uh, of the title. Mm. And it's a set of interviews with fi- largely British, a couple of few American figures, um, talking about various bits of philosophy. And that goes along with a couple of other volumes also based on documentaries that Brian McGee presented for the BBC uh, about, again, for the most part, 20th century philosophy and the uh, earlier history of philosophy. And so it was there where I discovered um, not just the history of philosophy, though, of course, that came with it. You learned about Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and Hume and so forth. But on top of that, um, I began to get quite interested in the people who were there in the studio talking about Aristotle and Plato and Hume and others. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first intimation I had that this was a subject one might study and that it was um, uh, a matter of you know, serious academic attention. So when I did come to Oxford, um, I very early saw quite quite clearly that uh, this was the world of those people. This was the world where, you know, Miles Burniett and Anthony Kenny and Bernard Williams and various of the other people who had featured in, in that programme had once been. And I was being taught by, not them directly, most of them were dead by then. So this was about 2007. Mm-hmm. But their uh, students were still around. And there were very clearly presences. Um, people, st- you had the sense of conversations that hadn't been finished. You know, and I wish I'd told Peter when he was alive, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. um, so you got the sense of, you know, blasted. I've come here just a little bit too late to to meet these people who were clearly... Uh, formidable intellectual presences and uh, charismatic personalities. So in the beginning, I think it was um, wanting to write about them came in part from an attempt to compensate for just having missed something big, having come a little too late to have met these people. But then uh, the thought occurred to me that it was possible to make a virtue of it, virtue of the fact that um, I hadn't met them because there was a sense in which I didn't have unsettled business with them. They weren't my rivals or enemies or my teachers. So I felt like they could all become mine. I could sort of take them over, sort of be possessed by them uh, in a way that I couldn't if I'd known them as individuals. And there was a way in which I could respond to their thought and their writings in a way which I think would have been difficult if I'd had a, a sense of their more quotidian, everyday personalities. So I think that's one way of describing the origins of the book, the desire to try to recapture a period of history that I'd narrowly missed experiencing myself. And perhaps uh, an attempt of taking this thing which had first struck me as alien, extremely English, and something that I had to kind of uh, wean myself onto, learn how to do this sort of thing, and say, well, I'm going to write the book about it, and then it'll it'll become mine, it'll become sort of more mine than all the people who uh, have actually lived here. Uh, because I get to tell the story of sure. the tradition. So, I mean, that's a slightly uh, eccentric way, perhaps, of describing my motivations, but I think that's what was going on. And it's a substantial length of time that you wanted to look at as well, with, as you, and you, you've mentioned a, a range of figures already, but, you know, we've also got um, A.J. Eyre, J.L. Austin, who figures, um, you know, in a, in a very major sense. Um, we've got people on the periphery as well from Cambridge, but we've also got the quartet, um, and we've got so many other people in the mix. Was it? it, it it's not just a substantial length of time, but a, a, such a wide characters, uh, a wide wide cast of characters to bring in. Um, was it, in a sense, difficult to kind of bring it all together? Did you feel that you had to read all the biographies of all these people and, and to try and, and and all of their you know their their major thinking to try and bring it all together, or was it not quite as um, 
I mean, is it as, as huge a task as that, I suppose. Yes, it's interesting you've described it as a uh, as a large time period. I've had uh, letters from people complaining that it's far too short and surely I should have really <laughs> 1834 and gone on to 2015 if I really want to get a sense wow. of what was going on. Uh, perhaps someday I will. I mean, there the is next in my... volume. The next volume will come at some point, maybe. I think a couple of sequels, a couple yeah. of prequels going all the way back to, I don't know, John Locke or someone. The, 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 <laughs> the earliest English-speaking author whose prose I can actually understand. Sure. Um, yes, I think there was, I'm not sure there's a correct way of dividing up these periods. I mean, as, as, as we all know, there's something unnatural about um, what historians call periodization. Mm. It's a convenience, and sometimes uh, we find ourselves looking for some convenient round number. Uh, and I have conveniently found mm. two round numbers, 1900 to 1960. Um, and so while fully admitting that there's something a little bit arbitrary about about these choices, uh, the significance of these numbers was the following. 1900, I think, is a significant uh, year for, for, for three reasons. Uh, so the first is that it was the year that Friedrich Nietzsche dies, mm -hmm. I think the August of that year. And around the same time, possibly a couple of weeks before or after, uh, a similarly preeminent English figure in philosophy, Henry Sidgwick, a Cambridge moral philosopher, dies as well. Mm. And about the same time, uh, not very far from where you are now, I think, Miles, in, in Sussex, Gilbert Ryle, yeah. who's kind of founding and central figure of this tradition, is born. Mm. And I don't know if I put this fact into the book itself, but in, in a way, that's what started it off. It, it, this observation that the very same, about 40-day period, involved the end of something belonging to the 19th century, um, a very tortured, very intense kind of philosophy where people are mulling over things like the death of God and, you know, what is the future of humanity in the face of this vast and cosmically significant discovery? So you find that in one register and style in Nietzsche, and we, we sort of know what that's like. Uh, on the other hand, you have it being manifested in a very different way in Sidgwick's work. Sidgwick being um, a very controlled man, extremely academic, spent nearly all of his life in, in Cambridge, um, and was a deeply pious man until he lost his faith, but somehow managed to retain his piety, or if you like, a temperamental piety mm. when he lost the actual beliefs. So um, what then happens is you find Gilbert Royal being born into the sort of world that people like Sidgwick had built, right? a world of academic philosophy, a world where philosophers write for each other, where they publish not for the sorts of publications that, say, John Stuart Mill would have uh, would have written in, but in things called journals. Yeah. And so that kind of world is just coming into being. And then Ryle is born. And Ryle um, is the grandson of uh, a bishop, a bishop of Liverpool. But he himself is brought up entirely without religion. And by the time he comes to Oxford, the transition's already complete. Philosophy has become an academic discipline and increasingly a, a secularised discipline. Uh, He's teaching at institutions which started off, in many cases, uh, to train monks or priests and even by that stage of, um, of the 20th century, you find that they're moving away from even having theology as a, as a possible option they might study. So there are these large kind of cultural things happening in uh, around that time. And so Ryle was a very convenient person to start it with. If anyone is, you know, if you need one person to represent all of Oxford philosophy, it would have to be Ryle, I think. And conveniently, he's born in uh, a year that's significant for these other reasons and is also a, a nice whole uh, round number. It worked very well indeed, didn't it? Yeah. Yes, and on the other side, why stop in 1960? Well, 1960 was the year of the death of another central figure of Oxford philosophy, and that's J.L. Austin, 
And Austin was quite young. I think he was just about 48 when, when he died. But it's generally recognized that if there was a distinctive thing called Oxford philosophy, then um, Ryle and Austin were at the heart of it. And when Austin died, some of the energy and dynamism, the dynamism of it sort of um, petered out. And it began to transform itself into something else, even within Oxford. And more generally, Oxford began to be increasingly marginal to international English language philosophy with um, America, places like Harvard, for instance, Princeton, Chicago, Berkeley, becoming much more significant. So if you're trying to find a nice period where Britain is central to English language philosophy, the 1900-1960 seemed like a nice range um, that's unified by certain themes, unified by certain personalities and their lifespans. That's fascinating and and some detail there that I didn't know and I'm, and I'm sure our listeners will, will want to pick up on and, and look at more. Could you give us a little bit of an idea about what ideas were fermenting around this sort of time? Um, because obviously we've not just got a major period in Oxford, but a major period in Europe as well with, um, you know, two world wars and so much else going on besides that, that must have affected the ideas that were uh, developing. Yes, it did. And one of the things the book is trying to do is to sort of juxtapose those two things, um, where you have a sense of this year's 1945, incredibly important, because this is when Gilbert Ryle becomes the Wayne Fleet Professor of Metaphysics. Oh, and by the way, the World War ends that year as mm. well. Uh, and there's an attempt to kind of go back and forth between uh, between those things, uh, the intellectual history of the 20th century, which it's possible, I suppose, to write, because some people have written it that way, with no regard or attention, whatever, to the fact that people just didn't sit around doing philosophy all the time. They sometimes are interrupted from their intellectual activities by, I don't know, the bombing outside their house or having been conscripted to go and serve in the armed forces. So um, that's certainly, you're quite right to say that it's significant um, for those reasons in ways that I try to say were also significant for philosophy, that ramified the kind of philosophy that was done. Uh, but you asked me to say something about the ideas that are emerging at that time. Um, yeah. If you want um, a simple phrase to capture uh, what's going on, perhaps the, the standard I don't know, historiographical expression we use for it is the linguistic turn. Mm. And this is something that starts a little bit earlier than the period I write about, um, probably about the 1870s, and in the work of uh, a German philosopher called Gottlob Frege. And again, to put this all very, very crudely, the idea is that um, philosophy at different points has um, asked itself the question of where should philosophy begin? Mm. Or to put it in a slightly different way, uh, what is the first philosophy? What is the most fundamental of philosophical questions on which everything else depends? And again, to be a little bit crude about it, there's a period in the early Greek history of philosophy when it seems like first philosophy is metaphysics. It's a study of being. Mm. And then there's a bit in the early modern period, uh, most importantly represented by Descartes, when you say, oh, philosophy starts from the question, what do we know? Uh, do we know anything at all? And so the enterprise there is to refute a certain kind of sceptic, someone who says we can't know. But then in the 19th century, what you find is um, perhaps we should start instead from the question, what do our words mean? So questions, in other words, of, about language, questions about meaning and mm -hmm. reference. And by the time we get to the early 20th century, that 
approach to philosophical questions, trying to get clearer about the language in, the being, in which they're being expressed, um, and being open to the thought that our ordinary ways of speaking might be philosophically misleading. There's something in the surface structures of language which misrepresents or misleads us about the nature of the reality underneath. And so people in Cambridge, in particular Bertrand Russell, to a smaller extent G.E. Moore and the early works of Wittgenstein, uh, are all characterized by this kind of aspiration. There's something misleading about language. And once we clarify the language, some of the problems of philosophy or the apparent problems of philosophy will be resolved with it. But in these kinds of figures, in the earlier period, a lot of the people writing here are trained as mathematicians or logicians. And they seem to think that the trouble is with what might be called ordinary language. Uh, the trouble is that we don't have a sufficiently precise and technical language of the kind that we have in the sciences or in mathematics or in logic. And once we, if we just find this more perfect language, then perhaps we'll see why um, certain problems just go away. And what I'm saying about the Oxford figures who come afterwards is mm. that they're saying that's not the project. It's not to try and find a more perfect language than the one we speak. In other words, ordinary language. Uh, there's a, an important sense in which there's nothing wrong with ordinary language. Uh, it does its job perfectly well. And it's only philosophers who go around uh, mucking about with it who then discover puzzles and paradoxes and problems, which uh, there wouldn't be, or there would never arise in the first place if we only attended to the way in which we actually use language. And so a more realistic picture, a more close attention to the way in which we use our ordinary English words, or indeed words of our native languages, will dissolve philosophical problems that we thought were incredibly serious. So that's the, the governing idea of this tradition, the idea that attention to ordinary language could be a way of making problems go away. And this, this idea of ordinary language philosophy that you're talking about, it, it makes it sound very accessible and applicable to everyday life, but I, but it, it's not quite that straightforward, is it? Um, well, certainly it's not. Um, some of it is difficult to read. Some yeah. of it is not written in a particularly accessible way. So it's not ordinary language in that way. But I think it's worth distinguishing those two things. Uh, on the one hand, there's the fact that um, these philosophers are suspicious of jargon. They do think that a lot of problems are created when you invent a jargon and then you sort of find that the new words you've, you've made are the source of all sorts of fresh confusion. Mm. Wherever possible, I think they do try to uh, keep their writing and their speech free of, uh, of jargon or unnecessary technicality. And when they do introduce technicality, which is you know, a moderate amount, they try to make sure that uh, the terms have been introduced from first principles. So a phrase that's quite common in this period is you haven't given a sense to that notion. Yeah. You've introduced a new term of art and you haven't yet told us exactly how it works. What does it mean? What function is it? Is it performing? So in that sense, yes, there's um, that kind of um the connotation of ordinary language philosophy as being written in uh, jargon-less prose is not entirely false, but I don't think that's the essence of it. I think the essence of it uh, is more about how um, how many philosophical problems are the product of our misusing or misunderstanding the ordinary use of certain words. Uh, would it help if I illustrate with, with an example? Yeah, please do. Sure. So um, this is a slightly simplified version of the argument of uh, Gilbert Ryle's classic work, the, the Concept of Mind, which I think was published in 1949. So um, this is Ryle writing the late 40s, um, 
a book about what he calls in his title, The Concept of Mind. But one of the things I think that book is doing is to say that there's um, that title itself is a bit of a misnomer. There is no such thing as the concept of mind, because the, the very uh, assumption that there's a thing called the mind, and we have a concept of it, and we can write a book that tells you what that concept is, uh, reflects something that's very tempting, uh, but it's wrong. Yeah, It's tempting because, well, the word mind is uh, a noun in the way that body is a noun. So you think there's a thing called the body, well, there should be another thing called the mind. And perhaps it's equally tempting to say, oh, there must be a thing called the mind which lives inside another thing called the body. And what Ryle wants to say is that this is the sort of thing that it's tempting to say because of the superficial features of uh, of language, the fact that mind is a noun, at least in English. But there, I think he's taking into account uh, an idea that's also associated with Wittgenstein in the 1930s. And there's a uh, almost a kind of motto that Wittgenstein has in the lectures of his that got published as the Blue Book in the 1930s, mm -hmm. where he says, um, questions such as what is length, what is meaning, produce in us a mental cramp. We feel that we can't point to anything and reply to them, and yet ought to point to something. And in parentheses, he adds, we are up against one of the great sources of philosophical bewilderment. A substantive, that is a noun, makes us look for a thing that corresponds to it. And I think what Wittgenstein and Ryle are all trying to do is to say, when we're not doing philosophy, we don't actually make such a fuss about there being one thing called the mind. Rather, we think in terms of the many, many things that we do that expresses the way in which we think about the mind or minds or mental activity. Uh, so uh, we can speak instead of feelings, of thoughts, of sensations. We can speak of perceptions, of beliefs, of knowledge. Uh, we can speak of habits, of propensities, of inclinations. Um, there are plenty of ways in which we can speak more specifically of the activities of the mind. Mm. But where, what you're trying to do is to say, once we've described all of these activities in a, in a way that brings out their structure and their interrelationships, you don't then need to say, ah, what is this thing called the mind in which all these things happen? There's no more to be said about the mind than what you've done in describing the way in which we talk about mental activities. So it's, if you like, a kind of deflationary project. It's trying to say that we thought that on top of having our thoughts and beliefs and knowledge and all the rest of it, you needed this other thing, the mind. You don't. You just need to describe what's actually going on. And in a sense, that's it, it, makes, a good, it makes a good deal of sense, doesn't it, to consider those those kinds of propositions and, and think think about the way in which we talk about everyday words i suppose like body and mind and I, it, it's interesting as well that you kind of make connections to earlier work that was going on particularly with wittgenstein because quite often um we think that there must have been some kind of competition with um that philosophy at cambridge was one thing philosophy at oxford is something very different or maybe there's some kind of um, tension there in the period that you're writing on, uh, uh, does this spur on those working at Oxford? Do we get a sense that there is uh, there is a sense of competition at particular points or with particular figures? Yes, I think as a matter of relationships between personalities, possibly. But mm. one of the things I think uh, one way of describing the general project of my book is to say that some of the differences and antagonisms that uh, we often associate with intellectual life generally and perhaps intellectual life of this period in particular are just mistaken i think they're overstatements of fairly minor differences uh, and i think this is generally true it's a kind of tendency to to find a kind of tribal loyalty to one yeah. thing i feel like one has got to um, emphasize overemphasize the differences between 
that thing and its and its nemesis. Uh, I think the way I think about it, it's just one big tradition. Uh, some of it happens in Oxford, some of it happens in Cambridge, some of it happens in Aberdeen, some of it's happening in London, some of it's happening in Vienna, some of it ends up happening in Boston and Chicago and, uh, and California. Uh, I think they're all one thing. And we're yeah. looking to find a description that brings out both what's similar about all the different things that are being done and occasionally to attend to some of the minor differences. So uh, to give you an example of the sort of thing I have in mind, uh, here's something that I do think is a genuine difference. It's in the nature of philosophy, as it's been done for the longest time at Cambridge, that it was done as a, what we now call a single honours subject. You, you come in as an undergraduate and you do philosophy for three years, or if you lived before the 1960s, it would have been called the moral sciences tripos. Mm -hmm. And you then have a sense of uh, connection, historical connection to some of the pioneering early 20th century figures, G. Moore, Burton Russell, maybe Wittgenstein, maybe Frank Ramsey. And one thing you become aware of is that so many of these figures were or were trained as mathematicians. Uh, and, and Russell and Ramsey were possibly some of the greatest mathematicians of their age. Mm -hmm. Well, you come to Oxford, on the other hand, and you find that philosophy was has never been and still isn't taught as a, as a subject uh, in its own right, just by itself. You have to do it with something else, philosophy and politics, philosophy and economics, philosophy and um, German but most importantly, philosophy and classics. Philosophy is part of the four-year classics degree. And I think if you want a sort of a, a rough difference between these traditions, it's a difference between what philosophy looks like when you come to it having done a lot of maths before, and what it looks like when you uh, come to it having done a lot of Greek and Latin, yeah. uh, Greek and Latin literature and ancient history before. And it produces slightly different personalities. It maybe attracts slightly different personalities. And insofar as there's a single line of contrast, it's the, the, the sort of thing that Oxford philosophers were mocked for by the Cambridge ones, which is they're trying to do something they call logic, but they haven't the faintest idea of how to do maths. So I think that's the only thing I can think of in the way of a clear distinction. There's plenty of other subtler points of difference we can go into if you'd like. Um... I mean, fascinating though it is, I think it's. I think what I'd like to do next is to think about who the maybe the key figure, actually, yeah. um, in J. L. Austin. He seems to be, um, fair to say, a bit of an intellectual hero of yours, perhaps, or at least somebody who has had a, a major impact on thinking at this particular point in time, and in a sense, one that continues to be felt in philosophy. Yes, I think Hero would be going a bit far. I think okay. I have a kind of reaction of complex ambivalence about him, but I do admire him enormously. And I uh, I think there are, there are criticisms of him that strike me as unfair. And one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is to present um, a slightly more charitable, a generous view of, of him, his philosophy, and what he was trying to do with it. So J.L. Austin, born in 1911, dies in 1960. Um, like many other of his Oxford contemporaries, studies classics, gets elected to the very competitive All Souls Fellowship, which gives him several years in which just to sort of think about things. Lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's thing. um, yeah. And many of the philosophers here, uh, Isaiah Berlin, Ben Williams, were recipients of that fellowship as well. And uh, Austin then, by the time he's starting to teach, he's one of the early figures to resist one of the more fashionable trends in philosophy in that period. And that's the view called logical positivism. Mm -hmm. Okay, very crudely, that's a set of ideas that emerges in Vienna from sort of the, over the 20s and 30s and is brought back to, to England by A.J. Eyre, who, who lives in Vienna in the, in the early 30s. 
And Eyre and Austin, along with several others, are members of a group where they're debating these ideas that have come uh, from Vienna. And again, to summarize them very crudely, the idea is that um, the main question really is what, uh, what makes sentences meaningful, literally meaningful. And the positivists give us a pretty stringent criterion for meaningfulness. Things uh, are meaningful as long as they're either empirically verifiable or um, because they are uh, true in virtue of the meanings of the words. And so that means logic is okay, it's meaningful, and um, science is okay, and that's meaningful as well, but pre pretty much everything else is nonsense. Uh, it doesn't have literal meaning, perhaps it has some other purpose, maybe it's a way of clearing your throat, maybe it's a way of expressing your emotions, but it shouldn't be treated as literally meaningful. And I suppose one way of telling the story of this period is it's, it's one of the provocation from Vienna and a generation of people trying to learn something from the provocation and then try and um, climb back from some of its excesses. And so there's a great formulation in Gilbert Ryle where he said that the formula either science or nonsense had too few ors in it, uh, ORS in it, yeah. uh, in that there were many other uh, kinds of meaningful speech. And I think Austin is someone who wants to say, why do you want to do philosophy in the strange top-down way? By starting with a criteria of what's meaningful and then going around dismissing the things that don't meet your criteria. Yeah. Why don't we instead start from the bottom up, start from within the world of our language and its usage? and then try and develop a theory of what might be meaningful or not on the basis of a thorough understanding of what we're actually doing with our words. And so he resists in, in, the, in the late 30s some of these, what I was calling, positivistic excesses. And it seems like he's going to come up with something really interesting and original, but then that's when his life has a strange turn. He's called on, as many of the men, at least in Oxford, are in that period to serve in the Second World War. Uh, he ends up working in military intelligence, and uh, in particular does some extraordinarily important work uh, on the intelligence uh, for the D-Day landings. Mm -hmm. He comes away with you know, military honours from, I think, Britain, France and America for the, the significance of what he was doing. Now, I, I should say, um, I kind of hugely regret that my book came out before one that I just had in the post, which is a full length biography of J.L. Austin by Mark Rowe, which was published, I think, just last week by Oxford University Press. Yeah, and just seen that. Yeah. I, uh, and I have been reading it and uh, it's really frustrating. There's so many things I could have used if I'd known them, uh, but I've been too lazy to, to find them out. Uh, so I'll say one thing about Austin's uh, method, or what he learned from his wartime experience. I think one thing he found striking about British intelligence when he first joined it is that having had nothing like a war of this scale to deal with, it didn't really have any methods. Uh, it was done by gentlemen amateurs who didn't really have a sense of how to manage uh, intelligence collection on this kind of scale. And he discovers the thing that I suppose uh, now strikes us as obvious, that this is not a matter for small groups of people who by sheer genius will sort of discover all the facts there are to discover. Mm. It's uh, rather a matter of patient collection and putting together, uh, discerning of many, many, many facts. And this is something that cannot be done by one person or even a small group of people. It's something that needs to be seen as a collective enterprise and importantly, a cooperative enterprise. And so when Austin comes back to Oxford, I think he brings something of the spirit of that 
wartime effort to say, why should we think these large questions of philosophy are a matter of someone having one epiphanic, dazzling insight yeah. that will solve all the problems at once? Nothing else is like that in life. Science certainly isn't like that. Military intelligence isn't like that. So what we want from philosophy is to see it as something that's done by a group of colleagues who are working cooperatively and trying to take something very large and complex and break it down into something more humanly manageable. And I think in that, he, um, to my mind, is learning the right lesson from science. So you think of the positivists as people who are saying, let's make a fetish of physics and basically dictate to us what counts as meaningful or not. And Austin, by contrast, is saying, let's try and learn something not from whatever scientists say about language, but rather um, let's try to learn something from how scientists actually do science. And once we start to see uh, philosophy as cooperative, then the place for the kind of stereotypical figure of the Germanic mage, the kind of the guru figure, the the enchanter, to use a Murdochian expression, mm. so sits around a circle dictating them what their views ought to be, that sort of fades away. And you see uh, philosophy as a much more democratic enterprise, something to be done by people who see themselves as friends and colleagues who are all trying to find out the answer to the same questions. And I think that's a lovely segue because obviously... Being the Irish Murdoch podcast, I couldn't get away without asking about Murdoch. And of course, she fits in very nicely here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, Austin working at the same time as Murdoch and Midgley, Foote and Anscombe, um, that, those wonderful quartet of women. Obviously, we've got forerunners like Susan Stebbing and Dorothy Emmett, obviously two very important uh, 20th century philosophers. But these four women um, have been seen in um in a loose sense as a school in, in in two recent quartet books both of which obviously have, um, we've got podcasts on um how are you seeing the quartet fitting into this i'm very interested in how they fit into the wider scheme of things connected with austin and air and berlin and also i wonder whether those two books that came out in the last um year 18 months were useful to you Yes, I should say my book was uh, written before um, the, the other two books came out. Right. Um, and so uh, it, the, the original structure, I think, was conceived more or less independently of their work. But of course, I've, I've been in touch with some of the authors and uh, been enormously grateful for the kind of attention they've drawn to, to those four women. So I think I'll, I'll say something about the way in which I see my work as continuous with theirs, and perhaps one respect in which I think I have a slightly different view of how to see that tradition sure uh, the sense in which i suppose i agree with them is i agree these four women are absolutely wonderful philosophers enormously important for intellectual reasons and they model some very important intellectual and human virtues uh, in ways which i think very helpfully um, provides a contrast with some of the more combative aggressive uh, merely ironic sometimes excessively flippant styles of philosophy that the men even the ones i admire uh, i think I should admit in fairness, guilty of. So to that degree, I think I agree with them. Uh, I have some more reservations about what kind of unity we can find among uh, the four women. And I suppose this is a problem to which um, the authors of, of the, the books about the quartet are, are certainly aware that the notion of a school often is a kind of fiction. Uh, the occasions on which it's not a fiction are in cases like the logical positivists. They actually call themselves a circle and they have a manifesto and they have a kind of house journal and um, very recognisable set of doctrines to which they all subscribe. Sure. Um, I think it's harder to find something like that unifying the members of the so-called quartet. So the way in which I prefer to see them is as part of a heterodoxy within a larger tradition 
of philosophy within Oxford, within Britain more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a sort of aphorism I use at various points in the book. I say that a tradition without a heterodoxy is only half a tradition. And the mistake, I think, is to say that there's the tradition, which is consists of these you know, staid old men who go around sort of bantering with each other flippantly. And then there's the serious women who are kind of cooperative and are nice to each other and have deep insights in the nature of things. And I kind of want to resist anything that approaches that sort of caricature. Um, and even when I think any careful historian will avoid it, as indeed the books themselves do, there is very much a temptation in readers to kind of think that it's got to be about four plucky heroines of destroying the dragon that is... Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I, I would resist that. I want to say that... Um, there are many ways of drawing a line around sets of figures, and there are ways of drawing it which will include the four women on one side and uh, various men on the other, but there are equally ways in which you can see the men and women as being allies on particular questions. Well, allies are in the way that they conceive a philosophy as cooperative. And I think there are disagreements. There are disagreements in um, disagreements over what form cooperative work takes, what kind of argument, what kinds of uh, discursive conventions, styles of speech and thought um, are most conducive to the pursuit of truth. Mm-hmm. So I think once we start really thinking about affiliations, who's with whom, I think the story is a lot messier. There'll be times when you'll find that Murdoch and Austin are on the same page about something, but against Anscombe. There'll be other times when you know Anscombe and Austin, who loathed each other in, in, in personal life, actually have exactly <laughs> the same view to have Murdoch and the other. Yeah. And I think that's just what we should expect. Why should we expect any thoughtful individuals with any level of intellectual originality simply to line up in, in a convenient pattern. In sure. particular, why should we expect those patterns to mirror any of our assumptions about gender? I don't think they do. And what I try to do is try and find different ways of grouping people to bring out these unexpected filiations. And it's and it and it works very well and it is a nice counterweight to the you know, seeing these this book with with the other two, I think it does provide a, a wonderful overview of this particular period. And also I think a, a key component of the book, um of your book is it, it, its accessibility to a non-specialized audience. Clearly you are dealing with some very weighty topics, um, particularly around the way in which we can think about ordinary language and philosophy, linguistic analysis and so on. But you you do make it accessible, which is a, a, such a such a positive. Also, I think you see it's essential that we see these people that we've been talking about today as people and not sort of shut away um, doing philosophy that really doesn't really matter to what quote a, a real life. I guess was that also something that you wanted to you wanted to capture a little bit of their the personality as well as the ideas. Yes. I mean, for one thing, if it's going to be published as a trade book, uh, you need to give people some sense of the human context, the ideas, just yeah. because that makes it all uh, a lot more digestible than it would be if it was simply, right, and then someone wrote another paper, and in that paper they've refuted this earlier paper. Uh, I mean, that's daunting even for specialists. So, mm. um, so there's certainly that practical reason, the desire to have large numbers of readers, to get people into um, these ideas who don't already have a high level of technical training. But I do think there's another reason which I can justify on purely intellectual grounds. And perhaps here it would be useful to bring in an idea from J.L. Austin. Now, Austin, um, one of the most important bits of work and most influential bits of work he did in the, the, the last few years of his life was something he called his theory of speech acts, something that came out in uh, lectures he gave in Harvard in 1955, which were later published as How to Do Things with Words. That's a wonderful title, the idea of doing things with words. And 
to put it crudely, one way in which you might criticize uh, at least certain aspects of uh, linguistic philosophy, of the philosophy of uh, of language more specifically, is that it was obsessed with questions of what words mean. Mm. That there is a thing called the meaning which a word has. And the thing that Austin reminds us of, which is something that we, we kind of know already, which is that it's not the case that all that words have is meanings. Words also have functions. We, in other words, do things with words. And so you can always look at a piece of philosophy and see it simultaneously as a bunch of words which stand in very sort of logical relations with each other of, you know, does this follow, does this not follow, is this true, is this false? But you can equally ask questions like, why are they saying it? Um, why do they think this is the thing worth saying? Why are they saying it in this way? Mm. And there, what you're trying to do is not so much to take a text as if it's just a sort of transparent medium behind which there lies something called meaning and behind which there lies something called truth. Rather, you're thinking of it as activities, as something that um, Wittgensteinians might call moves in a language game. And then we need to ask ourselves, um, well, who are they talking to? What's the structure of the conversation? Who are the partners in the conversation? What are the assumptions, the presuppositions of the conversation? And what counts as the right sort of move within this conversation? And that, I think, very helpfully brings out, on the one hand, the relevance of individual temperament, quirk, idiosyncrasy, personality, these more psychological elements. It becomes a way of thinking about the relationship between the history of philosophy and the history of just you know, history, uh, the history mm. of the 20th century, the history of, of war and peace and politics and all the other stuff, because they're what are giving a backdrop against which the philosophy is being done. So the attempt then is to say, well, what were these philosophers doing with their words? And the answer is, well, arguing, but it wasn't the only thing they were doing. They were hectoring, they were unsettling, they were subverting, they were questioning, they were reconciling. And the attempt to write a narrative history of this sort, I think, is to try and give us a way in which we can see not just that they were saying these things and some of them were true, but they were doing these things and weren't they interesting? And I, I suppose as we go through this this period that, that you're writing on, the way in which words are considered, words are and, and words discussed and it's got a, the questions of, linguist, um, of linguistics um, does develop and change. And I suppose one thing that I'm also interested um, about is where we go from this period, really. Where do we end up with with linguistic philosophy? Where do we end up with moral philosophy at the end of this period of 1960? Obviously, as we move into the 1960s, as we know, we get a, a huge sea change in public morality and legality, loads of different um, laws and cut and culture more widely. Is there something to be said about the influence of the ideas that were being discussed in the 50s and early 60s? Um, about how, uh, in regard to how philosophers who were then de uh, working after this period either took those ideas on and applied them to particular real world examples, or was public philosophy not as a um, a major part of the discourse as it is today? So I'll say a, a couple of things about um, the kind of uh, evolution that moral philosophy undergoes in this period. So again, you can tell a, a very simple version of the history where in the 1930s, the big idea is that moral philosophy is nonsense mm. uh, because it doesn't meet the criterion for being either logic or science and then the period after that i think you begin to see that that can't be right there's got to be some way in which we can ask the question of what is the right thing to do um who is a good person these are perfectly meaningful things to think about and the question then becomes how do we get our best theory of language to fit with our 
pretty strong conviction that moral thought and reflection are both possible and desirable aspects of human life. Mm-hmm. So the figures of, of the quartet, in particular here, I think perhaps Philippa Foote is worth mentioning, is someone who's trying to do something Wittgenstein uh, often recommended, which is to assemble reminders. Now, you can get really caught up in a certain dogmatic picture of how language works in a way that renders moral thought more or less meaningless. And it also commits you to very strong, needlessly strong dogmatic positions about, say, the distinction between fact and value, and the idea that values can't be facts. And I think one thing that Foote famously brings out in a couple of papers in the late 50s, moral beliefs and moral arguments, is that we need to reflect on some of the ways in which we actually use moral language. And we don't only use the sorts of very thin, etiolated kinds of terms that a lot of philosophy before then was using. What is the meaning of the word right and what is good? Mm. Instead, think of words like, um, I don't know, treacherous. Think of words like um, betrayal. Think of words like uh, courageous. Think of words like uh, generous or kind. Uh, Something that was later termed thick concepts, terms which describe and have a sort of place within a culture and its ways of thinking about the world, um, but also clearly is evaluating them. It isn't just giving a bland neutral or impartial description of of some phenomenon. So I think Foote's move there, I think, was enormously profitable. It began to tell us that whatever this distinction is between fact and value, uh, if it exists, it's not a sharp distinction, because there are plenty of terms that straddle the divide between them. And once we've established that it's possible for at least some value claims also to be factual, because you can certainly say that some people are more courageous than others. And, and if your theory of meaning says that that's a meaningless sentence, then, well, so much the worse for your theory of meaning. Uh, so I think what it does is to clear the air a bit. Uh, it pulls us back from the brink of abandoning moral thought or thinking of it as arbitrary or purely subjective or relative or something of the kind and saying that here's something we can responsibly reflect about and reflect about together. And so you find some of those contributions appearing in public life, things like the Brains Trust in what was called the Third Programme, which later became Radio 3, and philosophers appearing on them constantly and are joining in or in discussions on the issues of the day. So there might even be respects in which there was more of a, a philosophical presence in public life then than there is now. Yeah. Uh, though I'm not sure anyone's ever tried to quantify it. So you asked me about changes in public morality, legality, and so forth. There, I think you slightly go outside the scope of my book. But it's one thing worth saying is that with the important exception of Elizabeth Anscombe, one thing that does unify politically many of these figures is that they are one or other kind of liberal. Mm. And I don't mean that they kind of walk around with a card or voted for the Liberal Party or all had exactly the same views, but rather that there's a commitment to a certain set of values and certain kinds of personality traits. And one of those personality traits that I do think of as essential to liberalism as a political philosophy uh, is one of irony. And by that I mean, uh, to quote a not very liberal philosopher, Roger Scruton, he, Scruton <laughs> defines irony, I think, as um, the ability to see everything as alien, including self. And so to treat even your own thoughts and feelings at in a certain arm's length kind of way. Mm. And that kind of detachment, that style of irony, that sense of even our most cherished convictions can be held at arm's length as if they're not ours, as if they're just one more object of disinterested contemplation, I think is a very important part of the, the approach to philosophy in this period. And I think for the most part, I mean, I have plenty of things to say about why they 
uh, that can't be the end of the story. There is a place for passionate conviction of the sort that someone like Anscombe would have embodied. But I do think there's something important and politically significant in this being a way in which we approach uh, conversation, a way in which we approach intellectual life, not as partisans of one or other tribe, kind of angrily trying to convict and condemn the other for the evil of not accepting our own views, but rather to see, um, I don't know, to, 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 to relate to our own views and feelings um, with an attitude of self-awareness and to kind of really raise the question, should we believe these things or not? So I find that a very uh, salutary aspect of the uh, culture, the intellectual culture of this period. Yes, I do as well. And I, I, I was going to pick up on something you just you just said there, connections with socialism. Of course, we've got the development of socialism sort of um, post-45 and um, figures like Murdoch and, and, and many others being earlier, previously involved in the Communist Party, then being um, becoming socialists and so on. Does does socialism have a, an important role to play in the in the last decade or so of the book, would you say, in regards to the way in which the philosophy in Oxford is, is changing its mindset? Yes, that's a very interesting question and one that I think I'd have to give more thought to if I'm going to answer it. Okay. Uh, well... It just came to mind and I thought it... I can say a couple of brief things about it. Yeah. Now, one reason why it's interesting to think about socialism and this connection is that a common cliche, a stereotype of Oxford philosophy is that it is conservative. Mm because it somehow thinks that what it's trying to do is to restore us to the kind of state of innocence uh, of ordinary <laughs> language. Yeah. And, if, and if you then say, as many Marxists indeed do, and I discuss some of them in the book, um, Herbert Marcuse, in, uh, who's by then in America, and Perry Anderson later to become the uh, editor of the New Left Review, I mean, what they say is if you, when you say ordinary language, you mean the, the language of the bourgeois. Mm. Right? It's, it's the language of the bourgeoisie, which you then reify and you kind of treat it as if it's a norm and standard for everybody else. But then to say that we should only use language in the way that the bourgeoisie do is another way of saying there ought not to be a revolution. And so you've you've kind of have reaction, reactionariness yeah. built into the very structure of your philosophical view. Now, for all sorts of reasons, I don't think this is right. And I don't think it's fair to the ordinary language tradition to say that it was merely conservative. But um one way of bringing out that fact is that in terms of their actual convictions, um, I mean, as you rightly say, Murdoch, who has a complex sort of ambivalent sympathy towards aspect of this tradition, was once a passionate communist. There's others such as uh, J.L. Austin, who said, uh, ad ad admiring things about the Soviet Union, uh, Austin went so far as to travel there uh, yeah. to kind of see what the experiment was, was like. Uh, there's other people, Bernard Williams, for instance, um, who's one of the figures who appears in the later parts of the book, is married at that point to, to Shirley Williams, mm. uh, who is, of course, a member of the Labour Party and a rising politician, and he's actively involved in that world of 1950s Labour politics. He's attending hustings with her. He's sort of making speeches on her behalf. He's sort of having these conversations with the big intellectual figures of, of British socialism. So uh, as long as we distinguish between revolutionary Marxist ways of, of doing philosophy and these more social democratic yeah, um, social uh, socialism. I'd say that that would probably be the governing politics of most Oxford philosophers, perhaps as of most intellectual figures in that period. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if I have more to say at this stage about whether the socialism came out in their philosophy in any more substantial way. But certainly, as a as a matter of fact, many of the philosophers of this period are also socialists of some moderate sort. Sure, and um, perhaps yeah, worth 
worth thinking about an, an, another time maybe so is oxford now and and maybe philosophy more widely still dealing with the ramifications or maybe the fallout from this period and do you think it do you think this particular period from 1900 to 1960 um still has an, an impact on how university philosophy is being done and taught today the answer to that has to be yes and no and i try and identify what i think survives of that kind of philosophy and what has changed um, what has changed for sure is uh, a sense of what the important questions are. I don't think you'll find anybody in Oxford or any other kind of prominent department of philosophy in the English speaking world, people who say that all philosophy is about restoring words to their use of an ordinary language. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably about three people, but not very many more than that. Equally, you certainly won't find anyone going around saying all moral language is nonsense. Uh, that sort of view, I think, is pretty much uh, dead and rightly so. What you will find is um, an openness to big theory, trying to come up with a theory of justice, a theory of freedom, uh, a theory of language use, a theory of the mind. Mm. And I think that a lot more ambitious attempts at doing systematic philosophy. And that's different in spirit um, to um, the kind of thing you'd see in the 40s and 50s, where words like piecemeal, I think, were seen as as high terms of praise. To say of someone that <laughs> he doesn't have a theory was, was a way in which that was the nicest thing you could say about your colleague. Or, yeah. or to say that he, you know, he deals with problems one by one, doesn't try and find one big master key to, to solve them all. I think there's a bit more um, sympathy for the idea that you know, there might well be a place for ambitious theory. And I think that's mm -hmm. come back. And it's probably been a while um, since that's been so, at least since the 70s, let's say. So that uh, would, would have counted as pretty anathema in the 40s and 50s. Uh, it isn't anymore. And perhaps most importantly of all, um, and I think it's very much a salutary shift, a lot of philosophers today have seen that there are interesting lines of overlap between what are sometimes called theoretical bits of philosophy, logic, metaphysics, philosophy of language, epistemology, philosophy of mind, on the one hand, and social and political questions on the other. Mm. So you can ask, for instance, um, for a long time, you're asking, you know, what is it, the difference between a property like hydrogen and a property like chair, right, the property of being a chair. And now people will say things like, well, why can't we equally say something like, uh, what is there a property of belonging to a certain race? Right. Is a race what some philosophers will call a natural kind? Or is it more of a construction or a fiction or a social kind that's uh, created by human beings to serve certain practical purposes? And these all seem to me to be perfectly appropriate subjects for philosophical reflection. But it took a while before people saw that there was no reason you couldn't do that kind of old fashioned philosophy just with the kinds of moral and political questions that concern us now. So all of that seems to me to be a change, and at least some of these are changes for the better. Uh, what's remained the same, or what I think has remained the same, is something that was not original to Oxford philosophy, which was uh, something that goes all the way back to Socrates. And I think the basic Socratic idea about philosophy is that philosophy is not, as Murdoch might say, self-expression. Philosophy mm. is not rhetoric. Philosophy is not sophistry. It's not something you do for money. It's not something you do simply to win an argument and humiliate your opponent. Philosophy is part of an attempt to pursue truth. And the way to pursue truth is to seek clarity mm. and to seek precision in your use of language. And what you see in, uh, from the certainly at least from the 1930s onwards, 
is an attempt to take that kind of Socratic ideal of philosophy seriously. What is it to aspire to clarity and precision in our speech and thought? And I think it reflects a deeper moral and political idea of what you owe to your fellow philosophers, what you owe to your fellow inquirers. You owe them clarity because when you're clear, you make it possible for your views to be refuted. You make it possible for your views to be assessed on their merits rather than accepted simply because you are the hair doctor professor who's running the department or because you've written a seven volume study of something that just commands everyone else's obedience. So I think uh, going back to what I said earlier about this being a democratic an egalitarian one, at least that's the ideal it adopts, however uh, little it may manage to satisfy those ideals in practice. I myself am convinced that that was the ideal. It's to be Socratic in the sense of trying to be clear. And you're trying to be clear because that's what you owe your fellow seekers after truth. And I hope very much that that, uh, that idea survives. And even if it's manifested in the slightly annoying feature of you know getting pedantic reports from a referee at a journal and so forth. I think um, the more charitable and generous way to look at these practices is as attempts to say, you've got to make yourself understood uh, to other people. And the reason you do that is because when you don't make yourself clear, the only reason anyone has to accept someone else's view is power, is the other person's claimed authority. And I think what this tradition represents is a rejection of the idea that some people have that kind of mage-like authority just to require people to accept their views. And that's the sense in which I say that it's an egalitarian and democratic tradition. And I think your book reflects that very much, both in the, the way it's produced, but also the, 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 the clarity of the, um, of the way in which you, you talk about these figures and, and their ideas. And, I, and I'm sure that having you know experienced uh, listening to you for um, an hour or so um, people listening in will want to click on the link and uh, and, and find out more and, and I'm sure by the by the book it's been a, a fascinating discussion Nichols thank you so much for for being on at the end of each podcast I always ask guests to recommend a book now obviously we've been talking about your book and people are going to go and buy this I'm absolutely certain of it but if there is one um, essay or easily accessible piece of writing or maybe a, a, a short piece in one of the books that um, one of these major figures has written which and, it, and this is a really tough question which one should um, a reader go for um, and maybe you could suggest too maybe one for the philosophers listening and maybe one for um, the general listener listening in yes i'd be happy to recommend a couple of things uh, if we're trying to find one uh essay that most represents uh the tone and style and register of oxford philosophy in this period i think that would have to be uh jl austin's a plea for excuses okay um, it's a paper where he says, I'm going to avoid talking about big questions about the nature of action and what is it for things to be voluntary and um, and do we have free will, those sort of large traditional questions. And instead, he says, Let's, this is a study of the various kinds of ass we make of ourselves and the way in which we try to apologize or excuse our conduct. And just the study of this very ordinary human thing, excuses, becomes a way of um, both illustrating this ordinary language method and in reminding you of features of human life that are entirely familiar, but start to look surprising and weird when they're seen in the light of this kind of philosophy. Or a non-philosophical work, perhaps this is a bit superfluous to the listeners to this podcast, but uh, I think Iris Murdoch's first novel, Under the Net, is interesting for all sorts of reasons. It's just such fun, so funny, uh, but it's also got intriguing little uh, appearances of uh, the philosophy and philosophers of the period that my uh, that my book is about. 
it has logical positivists, it has various sorts of linguistic philosophers, and they appear as figures of fun, but are also treated with a sort of respect. And I think yeah. that's the kind of attitude, a sort of irony that I'm trying to bring to my treatment of them as well. And I suppose I must have learned that originally from Murdoch. It's possible to take them seriously and try and get a sense of what they're trying to do. But also see that some of it's just a bit ridiculous. And you know I, that wasn't a, that wasn't a setup question for listeners. I'm I'm, but I'm very pleased that you've recommended some Murdoch. Obviously, I think Under the Net is a fantastic book, and um, yeah, well, and and I'm sure people will want to uh, return to that if they haven't already. But also the the Austin uh, paper, which I don't know, um, is one that I will now be um, visiting after um, after listening and um, being entertained um, by our discussion today. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure uh, to have you. So. Um, yeah, do please have a look at the uh, the link in the, uh, the the description box below the podcast. Um, so my thanks to uh, Nicole Christian for uh, being my guest today, and my thanks to you all for listening.